Hi, this is Bobby Kamari, and I want to thank you for listening to season two of the Living in Light podcast, where the whole season is going to be dedicated to the fabulous topic of sacred sexuality. I hope it blesses your socks off. Welcome to episode four, everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for today's show, where I'm going to unpack further what God's purposes for sex are. I've already talked about covenant intimacy in episode two. If you haven't heard that yet, please do go and have a little listen in your own time. I do think that understanding God's purposes for sex is so important, not just because it helps us to actually obey his commandments with joy when we truly understand why they are what they are, but also because in this world where sex can so often be portrayed as something transient and casual or merely physical, or even when it is seen as something more meaningful and sacred, we can still miss the manifold wisdom of God that is actually at play when it comes to sex. You know, like the layers upon layers of purpose and power behind such a glorious and supreme designed gift. And so today we're going to look at quite a few different areas, but first I am going to pray and then we can jump in. So Lord Jesus, I just thank you so much for today's episode. I thank you for what you're doing. I thank you for your incredible wisdom. I thank you, God, for how brilliant you are and just the way that you have created sex and sexuality in a way that we actually can't even fathom. And we thank you, God, that all of it's rooted in your love and in your kindness and in your sheer brilliance and wisdom in a plan that is so much bigger than anything we can see or know in this moment in time. But we just bless your name. We just thank you for your kindness towards us when you created this gift of sex and this beautiful dynamic of sexuality. And so today, Jesus, would you be the one to speak to every heart and Holy Spirit would, um, yeah, you just direct this episode in Jesus' name I pray, amen. So we're going to kick things off by looking at God creating sex for companionship and the beauty of doing life together with your spouse in this intimate dynamic. Um, To begin with, I just want to share that I actually serve as part of an incredible ministry founded by a few of my friends, and it's a ministry that's geared towards the sex industry, and so many of us are chaplains in several strip clubs in London. And when I first started doing this ministry, if I'm being honest, I expected to see older men, maybe unattractive men or men in corporate groups, you know, frequenting these strip clubs. Um, But again and again, I have seen beautiful men who could, on the outside, seemingly have any girl that they wanted at the drop of a hat. And here they are on their own, coming to a strip club, paying for attention. And as I have prayed and I've been filled with compassion for them, I have often pondered the reasons for them being there. And I can really only conclude that aside, perhaps from the fantasy aspect of it, they are ultimately there for companionship. And this is exactly what I read in an article about why such men go to strip clubs. And these are some of the quotes from this article. The primary reason that I go to strip clubs is loneliness. In the dead of the night, alone at home, the loneliness sometimes becomes unbearable. There aren't many places to go in the middle of the night and most of those choices don't necessarily ensure any kind of reasonable human interaction. 
I like to think I hold up my end of the bargain. I spend money, tip well, I'm clean and polite. In exchange, women talk to me and there is usually light, non-sexual touching, which I find very comforting. Sometimes I will calm down enough to find parts of it arousing. And then there's another part of the article that's titled Looking Beyond Beauty. And this is a quote from that article. Men would often admit they enjoy looking at naked beauties as a sole reason to be there. But when the conversation goes further, a stream of deeper and more controversial emotions would surface. Amongst them, the need for attention and appreciation would scream as the loudest. And then there's this other quote that says, nobody ever talks to me. No one ever cares what I have to say. I'm a 36 year old who wastes his life analyzing data that no one gives a damn about, shares one man. Who else can you talk to? Your best friend, his wife is besties with yours. So you have to be careful. Your business partner, you can't afford to show weakness. No, strippers, or at least the quality ones, are by far the best confidants I've ever had. Another quote. I guess every guy has different reasons to enter into a strip club. The poor guys want to feel powerful. You see them sweat when their carefully kept banknotes dwindle. Then there comes the insecure ones who never learnt how to chat a girl up. Or the loners who have nowhere else to go. And so these are some of the quotes from this article. And as I consider these quotes and as I consider these men who just don't fit like that stereotypical mould of who you would expect to be at strip clubs. And I consider the fact that there is this desperate need for companionship. And as illicitly as this desire for companionship may be fulfilled in a strip club, the need itself for companionship and attention and affection and engagement is a valid one. It's a divinely wired one and one that God, I believe, created to be met through sex in a beautiful, unrivaled way. And we know from the book of Genesis that he created Eve for Adam so that he would not be alone. And we read about this in Genesis chapter 2 verses 15 to 24 where God instructs Adam to tend the garden of Eden. And at this point Adam is alone in terms of humanity but he is surrounded by countless animals that God gives him the job of naming. Yet none of these creatures are a suitable companion for Adam one that will compliment him. And so God clearly tells Adam that it's not good for man to be alone. And then God puts Adam to sleep and takes one of his ribs. And from that rib, God creates a woman. And this woman isn't just a helper. The Hebrew term that's used to describe Eve when she's brought to Adam is that she is Eza Konegdo which means a counterpart, an equal, a corresponding opposite, one that was to make a power or strength for the man who would in every way correspond to him as his equal. So Eve was created as an equal companion. And so when Adam sees Eve and he checks her out, he's like, yes, this is the bone of my bones and the flesh of my flesh and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then the very next verse tells us that a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall become united and cleave to his wife and they should become one flesh. And so we find that man is not alone anymore. And in fact, immediately after Adam checks his babe out, God tells him 
that in this companionship dynamic of marriage, that man and wife shall become one flesh. Because God created sex to also be a beautiful gift of companionship, where you can enjoy sexual and non-sexual touch and listening and talking and laughing and growing and playing and doing life together and blossoming together through the ups and downs in this sacred union of marriage, where undergirded by this beautiful covenant love, there is no fear of rejection or shame or insecurity and dishonor. And so out of this one flesh union, God then gives both of them the mandate to multiply and fill the earth, which leads me on to the next one of God's purposes for sex, which is procreation. So obviously procreation means reproduction, but it's not just like this mechanical biological thing. And I think that most of us can agree that when we fall in love and become one with someone, we most often than not are filled with this desire and this joy to have children with that person as a symbol of our love. And it's so natural to desire having children with someone that you are in love with. Like you don't even have to know God to be totally awestruck by the prospect, the blessing and the yearning of birthing a precious life together out of a union of love. And even when people get divorced or when a relationship fails or a child is born within dire circumstances, even then, this glorious gift of procreating seems to hold a majesty all of its own that most humans on some level do recognize as being a miracle, irrespective of whether they believe in God or not. But even with that awareness, I think we still don't register just how insane it is that humans have been granted with this powerful privilege that God has endowed to mankind through becoming one flesh in sexual intimacy, which is this ability to produce another human life. And when in Genesis chapter 1, 27 to 28, God creates human beings in his own image as male and female and blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. He's actually creating the holy institution of family, family that is made in the image of God and rooted in the divine institute of marriage. And here we see God's original design for children to be conceived and born into a family relationship that's consisting of a husband and wife. And procreation, according to God, was always meant to take place within a yada framework of sexual intimacy, of being known, and it was always designed to multiply yada intimacy through procreation in the generations to come. And so no matter how secure or common or loving as a modern nuclear family setup might be in today's age, if we take God's original design found in Adam and Eve's marriage before the fall, the best family environment to procreate in for God's mandate to truly flourish is one of exclusivity, of loyalty that comes out of yada intimacy, of heterosexuality and loving matrimonial oneness that's bound by covenant. And obviously there is no condemnation if that is not what your family setup is like. And because we live in a fallen world, I mean, there are all kinds of family setups now and God is gracious and kind to show up in family upon family upon family, irrespective of how fallen this world may be. But I do believe that 
the family setup and stability of the generations to come was definitely key in God's original purposes for sex. And procreation is so sacred because it is not just a human life of mere flesh and bones that we have been granted the privilege and supernatural capacity of producing, but we are able to reproduce a human spirit which then has the mind-blowing capacity to know God in spirit. And so God ordained humans with the gift of intimacy with him, with one another, and out of this intimacy, this godly union, would come the privilege of procreating another created being made in God's very own image, possessed with the capacity to know God in spirit. And it would be godly fruit that came out of a covenant union with a godly purpose to also know God in yada intimacy. Because God's heart is to fill the earth with godly children who yada him. And I actually remember the moment this truth hit me several years ago on a personal level. And I remember I was watching an episode of a reality show called Run's House with rapper turned minister Run DMC. Some of you might know him, he's amazing. And it's a reality show about him and his beautiful family. And they were going through the tragedy of losing a baby and it was documented live on their show. And this little baby died two hours after her birth and all the other kids, they were so expectant for this new baby's birth. But then Run and his wife, Justine, had to tell the kids that the baby didn't make it. And um, it was such, such, such a sad, like tragic moment. It was just so um, heartbreaking. And then just in that moment, despite the tragedy and despite the pain and the grief of it, as a family, they all stood around Justine and they all just held hands and closed their eyes and wept and they prayed and they spoke to God and as a family, they reached out to him and there was so much peace and comfort and hope and restoration in that room and across the airwaves because this whole family knew God and they were intimately acquainted with God through the mountain highs and valley lows of life. And in that moment, I was literally awakened to this longing within me to raise godly children who truly know the Lord. And up until that point, having had two abortions before I knew the Lord and going through a season of thinking that I didn't deserve to have children and actually not really being a kiddie kind of girl, um, I just figured that I'm actually totally cool to never have kids or even get married. Um, but something awoke in me that day as I watched the beauty and the power of an entire family that knows God, that that has a yada union with him, navigating through the beauty and the storms of life together as a glorious witness of their great compassionate merciful and wonderful God, all living for the praise of his glory and the generational fruit of that family, like building eternal legacy, all rooted in intimacy with God. And I was like, yeah, I want that. I absolutely want that. 
And I do believe that this is God's heart, that through Yada intimacy, rooted in covenant marriages, that godly children would be reproduced, who will reflect God's nature and be made in his image, and that they would also know God in Yada intimacy, and that they would walk in his ways, establish his righteousness and on earth, and that they would bring him glory generation upon generation. And so that it's not just individuals, but entire families and generations that would be made in his image. I mean, man, that is so, so powerful. Wow. Next, let's look at relief and comfort as one of the reasons that God created sex. So God intentionally, I believe, designed sex to be a relaxant and stress reliever because let's face it, sex definitely helps to relieve stress and relax you because of all the feel-good yumminess that occurs. Um, But in a fallen world, that mechanism of relieving stress and angst through sexual release is often what can drive the need to masturbate or watch porn or engage in sex from what can sometimes be a transactional approach which might be cold and devoid of peace and sensitivity or trust and emotion for those that are engaging in it. But I actually believe that God created sex as a beautiful gift to also bring peace and well-being within the context of a committed loving marriage where companionship and intimacy and communication and vulnerability are all already in place as a foundation. So when a married couple engage in sex to release tension, it's done so with honour and liberty and transparency that's based upon the wider context of their mutual support and unconditional love for one another rather than a mechanical need simply being met. So if you know your spouse is under pressure or going through a rough time and having sex is something that could bring relief, that actually becomes a beautiful act of service and compassion and joy and love rather than something that outside of covenant marriage might seem cold and transactional or just a mere duty, you know, an obligatory thing. And another reason that God created sex is as a comforter. Because we can experience both God's comfort as well as the comfort of our spouse through this gift of sex. And in the Bible, there are actually a few instances where we read about sex being a comforter. So, for example, in Genesis 24, 67, Isaac is mourning his mum's passing. And it says that he was comforted by taking Rebekah as his wife and becoming one with her. And then in 2 Samuel 12, 24... We read about David comforting Bathsheba through sex after their baby that was conceived out of sin died. And just on that note, it's like quite crazy how God can redeem the very thing that caused the sin to become the provision too, like it's wild. Um, But actually, as I consider sex being designed by God as a comforter, I've always wondered if Adam first knew Eve in sexual intimacy in order to comfort her. Like... Imagine that. What if Adam and Eve were so broken over their sin in the garden that they made love to ease some of the turmoil of their fall? 
and that it wasn't necessarily pleasure or a desire to procreate or companionship that led them to engage in sex for the very first time in Genesis 4.1, but that it was actually their need for comfort and relief from the pain of being evicted from the Garden of Eden, which is what happened immediately before they had sex, according to the Bible. And maybe this was God's loving provision for them despite their betrayal. Because we know that when Adam and Eve got evicted from the garden, God killed an animal and made clothing for them. And so what if in the same way that God knew that they would need covering outside of the garden and so lovingly provided clothing for Adam and Eve through the skin of an animal following the fall. But imagine if that was also the loving way that he provided companionship and comfort for his children too, knowing that the grief of being evicted from the garden would be so overwhelming to them and that sex during this time would actually bring them comfort. And this is actually one of the reasons I believe that God has created sex, so that during times of grief and comfort that this beautiful act of oneness and love and intimacy could bring strength and could bring compassion in the deepest way possible and I think God did design this aspect of sex to reflect facets of his own comforting and tender nature because he knows and understands our every need in every single situation and he provides to meet that need in every single situation as well. So now we are going to unpack pleasure, which I obviously think is the most lush purpose for God creating sex, and I'm sure many of you will agree. So pleasure and recreation are definitely another fundamental reason for God creating sex, because God is basically the unrivaled author of pleasure. His heart for us when it comes to pleasure is for us to experience the highest kind of pleasure that has ever been created because he's not into counterfeits or cheap thrills and he doesn't want that for mankind either. You know, pleasure ordained by God is to be freely enjoyed without experiencing condemnation or negative side effects or unnecessary heartache. Like sexual pleasure enjoyed God's way enables us to experience an incomparably fulfilling and exciting sex life with our spouse. And contrary to the reputation that God sometimes has, um, God celebrates sex, not just ordinary, mediocre, run-of-the-mill sex either, but mind-blowing, glorious, blissful, beyond belief, exciting sex. And it was God who created pleasure. It was God who created the orgasm. Like from the very beginning, sex and pleasure were God's idea. And it was God who created sexual desire. And he could have made sex purely about procreation and kept things pretty mechanical and functional. But no, our incredible God lovingly chose to make arousal of our sexual organs pleasurable beyond measure. Like it was God who came up with the idea to create body parts with the sole purpose of sexual arousal. I mean, seriously, nerve endings with no other function but pleasure. Like God did that. And it was God who chose to give us countless more super sensitive nerve endings in our erogenous zones, which are completely different to nerve endings we have elsewhere in our human body. Yet because of the fall, our understanding of God as the author and the wonderful designer of sex has been so radically marred that we have simply no idea how great sex can be when we actually do it God's way inside of the framework of 
covenant intimacy. And as I mentioned in a previous episode, much greater and more supreme pleasure will be experienced within a covenant than you can ever experience within a mere flesh on flesh connection or even an intellectual or emotional connection because true sex the way God has designed it involves not just our body and soul but our spirit too and our human spirit can only be awakened when we know God so couples who have a relationship with God are awakened in that dimension within a covenant bond where the spirit of God has blessed that covenant union and so you can experience a greater level of pleasure And in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, the Bible tells us that we should absolutely enjoy a balanced and fulfilling sex life when it comes to marriage. This is what it says in the message translation. Now getting down to the questions you asked in your letter to me, first, is it good to have sexual relations? Certainly, but only within a certain context. It's good for a man to have a wife and for a woman to have a husband Sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them and provide for a balanced and fulfilling sex life in a world of sexual disorder. So that's good news, no? That you can totally have a fulfilling sex life in your marriage. And I looked up the word fulfilling, even though obviously we all know what it means, but I just thought, let's unpack that a little bit. So you've got rewarding, gratifying, enjoyable, pleasing. So that means that according to the Bible, you should have a rewarding sex life. You should both be enjoying it. You should be totally satisfied. You should be pleasing one another. It should be varied and fun and full of exploration and adventure. And as long as it's honoring and each other are the sole focus, you should have complete freedom in what you do. So I really hope that blesses someone today who is wondering just how fun your marital bed can be. And let me just tell you, you can go wild as long as it's honoring, as long as you are not doing anything that one another is uncomfortable with. And, you know, the Bible tells us that everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial so there's going to be some things that sure you can do and happy days you know it might be fulfilling a fantasy or you know it might be something that you want to try out but actually it may not be beneficial it may not actually be healthy it might not be hygienic you know so you you need to be wise but if it's something that isn't unhealthy isn't unhygienic go wild. That's my suggestion to you guys. So um, yeah, you're most welcome. (laughs) So anywho, when God included pleasure in the sex mix, it wasn't just the covenantal aspect of the marriage that was meant to turn us on, but all of the environmental and the psychological stimuli as well, you know, all the stuff that you see and that you think that turns you on. And it was also meant to be all the neurochemical mechanisms, the responses your brain has to like erotic imagery and thoughts and other types of stimulation. And so all of these were lovingly designed by God to actually enhance the bliss and satisfaction of it all. And, you know, when we actually explore these neurochemical mechanisms that God designed deliberately to bring us such sexual bliss, 
It's amazing how God has intentionally ordained it so that there is all this sexual arousal and pleasure that results from neurotransmitters that send signals from our brain cells to other parts of our body and God did that and in case you didn't know neurotransmitters are chemical messengers that help the brain communicate with other areas of the body which then produce tons of super delish feelings and when it comes to neurotransmitters like these are some heavyweights that do release a heck lot of pleasurable feelings so you've got dopamine which is a hormone linked with like motivation and reward and it's what you release when you anticipate sexual activity or when you anticipate doing anything exciting and it increases sexual arousal and the body produces it during the desire stage and then you've got oxytocin which is also known as the love or bonding hormone and it produces feelings of intimacy and closeness and the body releases it after orgasm and this is in fact the same hormone that's released when women are breastfeeding their babies to foster bonding and similarly for men you've got vasopressin which is a bonding chemical that men release which is also referred to as the commitment hormone or the monogamy molecule because it fosters loyalty and it causes a desire for more sex with the same person and it grows commitment and this again is the same chemical that helps a man to bond to his offspring and then you've got serotonin which gives us feelings of well-being and happiness during the arousal stage. And then the last one that I'm just going to mention, it's a killer to pronounce, but it's called norepinephrine. And this neurotransmitter dilates blood vessels in the genitals and other areas of the body during sexual stimulation, making these areas more sensitive to touch. And so you've got all these delicious chemicals amongst many others causing a chain reaction that not only feels good but fuels the desire to have sex with your spouse and creates high levels of attachment and so this cocktail of multiple chemicals that is released during sexual intimacy literally bonds you together like glue and it creates neurological pathways of behavior and rewards that become associated with your spouse, which results in sexual memories being connected with your spouse becoming etched in your brain. And this is because nerve cells that fire together wire together, which means that events in the brain become even more strongly connected if they occur at the same time. So in marriage, hormones firing and wiring together not only brings pleasure, but also strengthens the relationship and the unity and loyalty to one another. And the beauty of all of these glorious, blissful, you know, arousing kind of hormones is that in marriage healthy and disorder free sexual attraction arousal and response has been designed to be freely enjoyed in the union where physical attraction for one another will trigger sexual cues which the senses will then pick up leading to sexual arousal and releasing all these different chemical reactions causing all these different nerve cells to fire and wire together and just creating this glorious holy pleasure fest and then during orgasm emotions of deep euphoria will be experienced in response to all the explosion of all these neurochemicals that were released at climax and this deeply pleasurable experience 
will then get stored in the brain's sexual memory for future recall as a behavior with a payoff in the reward circuit of the brain. And so your brain is like, hello, we definitely wanna be doing that again because that felt so good. And so by God's design, this works to reinforce the desire to engage in that same pleasurable action with one another again and again. And then of course, you've got the addictive nature of dopamine and then the bonding capacity of oxytocin and vasopressin, enhancing the pleasure, increasing the intimacy and strengthening the loyalty between the couple. And so regularly engaging in this mental journey then actually becomes a preferred route for the brain where the brain of both spouses desires to have sex with each other as a preference. And so they just keep choosing one another. Their brains keep choosing one another as their first choice because it feels so good in the brain's pleasure system. And God designed sex to be so pleasurable within the context of covenant marriage, where our brain's response to sexual arousal is a God-ordained part of our body, soul, and spirit working hand in hand for the fullness of sexual intimacy to be experienced between the spouses. And so in marriage, the more we engage and respond to one another's sexual desire, the more we long to make love to one another. And so if you are married, go wild, guys. You can shag like crazy because the way God designed it is that the more we make love, the more our desire to make love to one another grows and the more chemicals are released and the more chemicals are released, the deeper the pleasure, the more the pleasure, the deeper the desire, the deeper the desire, the more sex we have and the more sex we have, the more frequently we reestablish our blood covenant and the stronger our blood covenant, the deeper the attachment, the deeper the attachment, the stronger the brain's mental pathways of lovemaking with one another as a preferred behavior. The stronger the mental pathways, the stronger the habit of making love. The stronger the habit of making love, the deeper the one flesh union with our spouse. The deeper the one flesh union, the deeper the yarder intimacy. The deeper the intimacy, the richer the marriage. The richer the marriage, the greater the joy and fulfillment. I mean, come on, please tell me that this sounds exciting. Like the way that God has designed sexual arousal and, and neurology and intimacy and the covenant, they work so beautifully to grow love and loyalty and commitment and faithfulness to one another in your marriage. I mean, it's quite brilliant if you ask me. And just to go back to the scripture that I quoted earlier from 1 Corinthians 7 verse 1, I don't know if you noticed in that scripture that I read that there is an acknowledgement that we are living in a world of sexual disorder. So all these incredible sexual mechanisms actually do have the capacity to be violated outside of covenant marriage, like obviously, but despite that temptation and despite the reality of sexual disorder in our world, as believers, we are equipped to have a rewarding and gratifying and enjoyable marital sex life without needing to succumb to the sexual disorder which is so rampant in our world and let's face it, sometimes in our own lives. But God 
does absolutely want us to have the best. He doesn't want us to settle for counterfeits or cheap thrills or sexual dysfunction. Like sexual fulfillment ordained by God is to be freely enjoyed without experiencing condemnation and negative side effects or unnecessary heartache that are unfortunately part and parcel of sexual disorder. But sexual pleasure enjoyed God's way, that enables us to experience an incomparably fulfilling and exciting sex life with our spouse where we can actually fully enjoy our God-ordained sex drives too. And that's what I want to tap into right now, sex drives. Um, And I love the fact that the same scripture that I've just referred to from 1 Corinthians also addresses sex drives when it says sexual drives are strong, but marriage is strong enough to contain them. And I love that sex drives are not being portrayed as evil in themselves in this scripture, but instead this scripture is acknowledging that yes, they exist and yes, they are strong, but that you can fully enjoy them in marriage. And by God's design, our sex drives are something that he has ordained to be intensely exciting and they are part of us. And once awakened, they should have the capacity to blossom and grow. And and actually, our sex drives are not designed to be interrupted once they've been awakened. And when we actually engage in masturbation or we start watching porn from a young age, what we end up doing is we end up illegally awakening our sex drive and violating it. And it doesn't have the capacity to truly blossom and flourish because by God's design, it's actually within the liberating, loving and honouring framework of marriage that a sex drive should be able to fully blossom without limitation. And so in order to experience the fullness of our sex drives, they shouldn't be aroused until they can be fulfilled in a way that they were best designed to flourish without interruption by the one who designed them. And actually the Bible speaks of this principle of not awakening desire before it's time. In Song of Solomon chapter 2 in the message translation it says don't excite love, don't stir it up until the time is ripe and you're ready. But the crazy thing is that because of our own hormones and our yearnings and our biology not to mention the onslaught of sexual messaging coming our way day in day out you can feel like you are ripe, ready and bursting forth with desire, full of sexual excitement, but actually, as stirred up as we can find ourselves in our highly sexualized worlds, we are still called to steward our sex drive with self-control until marriage. And so I guess that begs the question, what the heck do we do with our sex drive in the meanwhile? Because as much as we have been asked to surrender our sex drives to God and to control them, As sexual beings, sex drives and sexual desire are actually part and parcel of how we have been wired and there is such beauty and majesty in them. And God created our sex drives with pleasure in mind. Therefore, it is a healthy, God-given part of our wiring. And sexuality was part of humanity before sin ever entered the mix. So in themselves, sex drives are not at all sinful But obviously, when not stewarded with holiness and self-control, sex drives have the potential to lead to sin. And because in Christendom, sex drives aren't really spoken about enough in a healthy celebratory way, 
they can be seen as perverse or sinful and you can end up experiencing guilt and shame for possessing even the merest hint of a sex drive. And despite it being a fundamental God-ordained part of the way we have been hormonally created, many can oftentimes feel condemnation for what might be deemed as perverted or lustful desires and impulses. And as a result, many Christians don't even have any idea of how to handle their sex drive or the sexual desires that they may experience. And so what can often end up happening for Christians is that you can find yourselves like torn between you know the kind of general belief system of society which is just to go ahead and fully satisfy your fleshy appetite whether it's through masturbation or consuming porn or having sex with whoever you're attracted to and then you've got an often typical Christian view which is usually to suppress all sexual thoughts and desires that you might have until your wedding night and then switch your sex game on. And basically, both of these approaches are marred because as destructive as a worldly approach to sex might be, stifling sexuality until marriage is also super destructive. And given that everyone has a sex drive, yes, even Christians, we simply can't pretend that these drives don't exist. And we also, at the same time, can't let the confusion and the shame and the condemnation about having these very normal human manifestations continue to make people feel like rubbish. And I also think that as Christians, we need to be able to give permission and teach people how to so value one another as image bearers of Christ that we can walk in purity and we can genuinely appreciate beauty in one another and be attracted to the majesty that people carry innately without approaching it sinfully or lustfully because even if you take romance out of the mix as image bearers of God we are wired to appreciate admire and celebrate beauty in one another simply because of the innately desirable way that God has made us in his own image and so everyone is beautiful everyone is attractive so to be attracted to another's beauty or aesthetic appeal is not necessarily always a sensual impulse as much as it can just be a natural response to God's beauty shining through an individual and so as believers I think you should be able to admire and celebrate beauty in one another there's nothing wrong or sinful about that but obviously if this healthy and human dynamic of appreciating beauty and celebrating gender attributes in one another is not stewarded well then it yeah obviously it does have the potential to turn into lust and as believers even if we are attracted to someone and we do have desire for them despite our human frailties and fleshly desires that we've been created with we are also divinely equipped with a spiritual consciousness that enables us to master our flesh and preserves us from being at the mercy of our sensual desires. And so just because you fancy someone, which is very natural, it doesn't mean you have to get overtaken with insatiable desire for them. So as Christians, we don't have to succumb to the spirit of lust. We can walk in purity and still appreciate beauty and still celebrate our sex drive without succumbing to lust and so this is what I want to talk about next I want to talk about lust and lustful desires because they are directly related to our sex drive and so what is lust 
According to the Bible, lust is a forbidden craving or strong desire, often of a sexual nature. And so lust is a desire for illegal pleasure. It's the willingness to meet a natural and legal need or desire in an illicit or sinful way. So the need itself isn't illegal, but the way we choose to meet that need is illegal. And that's when we step into lust. And so if we feed our sex drive illegally, meaning outside of marriage, we end up feeding an illicit pleasure, which then transforms it into lust. And lust by nature will only ever increase. And so if we begin to engage in lust, it will continue to grow and it will ultimately end up mastering us. And really the only way to fulfill and contain the powerful sexual drive that God has wired us with is in marriage. And outside of marriage, awakening our sex drive leads to uncontainable passions or lusts that will only intensify its hold over us, quickly then leading to perversity. And for some people, this might seem like a foreign concept, like, hello, surely there's nothing illegal or illicit about fulfilling our sexual desire or responding to our sensual appetite. Especially if you're in a physical relationship with someone, then surely enjoying sexual pleasure is a fundamental aspect of intimacy, no? And even if you're not in a relationship and have sexual impulses, how can satisfying them be deemed lustful if God actually gave us those sexual impulses in the first place? And yes, I agree that it does sound ridiculous that if you have these bodily urges and if actually God created you with a sex drive and with these sexual impulses, then surely you should be able to satisfy them, right? But the truth is, is that there is a context in which to satisfy them. And when we try and meet that valid need for satisfaction in illegal ways, there are repercussions. But in this world, many times people think that these desires that we have, that the only way to actually satisfy them is through sexual release. But the truth is, is that because everything is so hypersexual in our world, and because everything is about sex, 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 as sex being the answer to so many things, there is this misconception that the desires and the longings that we have within us must be satisfied through sexual fulfillment. But actually, I believe that our sex drive isn't just about our physical needs like underpinning our sexual drives is our god-given thirst for intimacy to be desired to be loved and to be fully known in return and when you are fulfilled in that way you don't need to be physically fulfilled or sexually fulfilled if your desire to be desired and to be loved and to be known is being fulfilled. And obviously when it comes to marriage, this innate desire within us to be known and desired can be uniquely satisfied in an unrivaled way. But God actually created us to be fully satisfied in him as his bride. So although sexual desire itself should only be satisfied in marriage, 
When we fall in love with Jesus, he becomes our greatest desire and all other needs and yearnings simply take a back seat. And it's not that we ignore them or suppress them, but that we simply stop paying our sexual desires as much attention because we become so absorbed in the things of the spirit, you know, in knowing Jesus and in pursuing our calling in life through him. And it doesn't mean that those desires are no longer there. It just simply means that we are no longer driven by them. And instead we find ourselves with the grace and the guidelines and the spirit of self-control, which enables us to take these normal and healthy sexual impulses and actually lay them down at the altar until the right time. And we find that we don't need to seek sexual gratification to feel loved, nor do we need to violate our God-given sex drive by letting our sex drive rule over us. And as we continue to pursue Jesus as our greatest desire, a healthy, balanced approach to our sexual drive begins to unfold. And we find that a sex drive is not repressed or condemned, but instead it's acknowledged as part of our God-given wiring and it's daily yielded before God joyfully and confidently as an act of sacrifice, as an act of faith, knowing that God will make provision for our intrinsic desire for human intimacy, as well as provide the strength and grace that we need to walk in sexual purity. However, when it comes to marriage though, hello, our God-given sex drives can have a field day and have complete freedom to be indulged. And it's in this holy, transparent, loving oneness that our innate need for intimacy and to be desired can be tangibly fulfilled in our sexual union with our spouse without needing to hold back. And in the biblical book of Song of Solomon, we actually read about the bride's candid desire for her husband and she sure is not shy about expressing it. And so we read this in Song of Solomon, chapter 2, verses 3 to 6 in the message translation. There's a lot of fruit wordage here just to give you um, a bit of a heads up. Um, it says... As an apricot tree stands out in the forest, my lover stands above the young men in town. All I want is to sit in his shade, to taste and savour his delicious love. He took me home with him for a festive meal, but his eyes feasted on me. Oh, give me something refreshing to eat and quickly, apricots, raisins, anything. I'm about to faint with love. His left hand cradles my head and his right arm encircles my waist. And then in chapter 1, verses 2 to 3, and then verses 12 to 14 in the message translation also says this, Kiss me full on the mouth, yes, for your love is better than wine, headier than your aromatic oils. The syllables of your name murmur like a meadow brook. No wonder everyone loves to say your name. When my king lover lay down beside me, my fragrance filled the room, his head resting between my breasts. The head of my lover was a sachet of sweet myrrh. My beloved is a bouquet of wild flowers picked just for me on the fields of Engedi. And so this is the bridegroom coming back at her. You're so beautiful, my darling, so beautiful. And your dove's eyes are veiled by your hair as it flows and shimmers like a flock of goats in the distance streaming down a hillside in the sunshine. 
Your smile is generous and full, expressive and strong and clean. Your lips are jewel red, your mouth elegant and inviting, your veiled cheeks soft and radiant. The smooth, lithe lines of your neck command notice. All heads turn in awe and admiration. Your breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle, grazing among the first spring flowers. The sweet, fragrant curves of your body, the soft, spiced contours of your flesh invite me and I come. I stay until dawn breathes its light and night slips away. You're beautiful from head to toe, my dear love, beautiful beyond compare, absolutely flawless. And so it's all very saucy, guys, very, very saucy. And maybe for someone who has long been desensitized by the world's distorted idea of romance and sensuality, this type of intimacy might seem kind of mild and childish and a little bit, you know, Jane Austen vibes. But actually, this is sacred sexuality of the sweetest, holiest, most pleasurable kind, where two become one physically, emotionally, spiritually, and enveloped by a trust, a freedom, and unconditional love built upon covenant. And to the naked eye, it might appear to be seemingly lacking of adventure and erotica and taboo that a typical Hollywood film or today's overtly sexual music videos and social media might portray, but it's only within the confines of a faithful heterosexual covenant marriage that true unadulterated sexual pleasure has been designed by God to be fully enjoyed. And so given the type of sensual exchange that takes place between a husband and wife in this book of the Bible, I think it's safe to say that God endorses sex and pleasurable sex at that. And within the confines of marriage, I believe God has created us to freely explore as adventurous a sex life as we desire, as long as both husband and wife are honoring to one another, mutually consenting and remain the sole focus of one another's sexual desire. And also you just ensure that what you're doing is actually going to be a blessing to one another. And good marital sex should be a preserver against sexual immorality, which is another of God's purposes for sex. And I know it sounds funny, but that's what the Bible tells us, that if you've got a strong sex drive that you can't control, then it's better to get married than burn with passion. Now, obviously, that shouldn't be the only reason for you to get married, but what that does teach us that another reason God created sex is so that our sex drives could be fully satisfied in marriage and that they should preserve us from burning with passion outside of marriage. And in Proverbs chapter 5, it speaks of drinking waters from your own cistern, you know, out of your own pure marriage relationships and having fresh running waters out of your own well, you know, like keeping marital sex vibrant and refreshing. And it goes on to talk about rejoicing in the wife of your youth and letting her be as the loving hind and pleasant doe and letting her bosom satisfy you at all times and always being transported with delight in her love. 
And so the way that God designed it was so that a husband and wife would be transported by delight in their love for one another and that their marital bed would be fresh and it would be varied and it would keep drawing you back to your marital bed instead of going elsewhere. And so when it comes to our sex drives, God has designed it that rather than navigating through our sex drive illegally, where we might be masturbating or watching porn or having sex outside of marriage, that we as Christians would learn how to steward our sex drive with holiness and celebration, preserving our sex drive until marriage and enjoying it without interruption with our spouse. And this might be really difficult for you to do. You might be struggling, like you might be wrestling with um, addictions, you know, you might be caught up in watching porn, like I'm not sure. But what I will say to you is that if you are finding yourself wrestling with strong sexual desires and, and your sex drive, I want to encourage you today that your sex drive is not something to be ashamed of and sexual desires are part and parcel of our human wiring but that because we have the Holy Spirit you do have the capacity to surrender all of your sex drive and all your desires and all your yearnings and longings before God and that you can be confident that if you trust him and if you fully surrender to him that he will grace you with self-control to be able to master these desires and obviously it's my heart's desire that you would literally get breakthrough right now in this moment of time and experience immediate freedom and victory. But the reality is, is that sometimes there is a process involved of yielding our habits, our hormones, yearnings and longings and desires and sex drive before God and allowing him to work through that and sometimes it's a long process of renewing our mind and it can even be a painful process to navigate through but trust me if we can invite Jesus into that process and we can give him permission to walk with us in this journey then there is this assurance that over time you will learn how to control your sex drive and how to honor and celebrate your sexual wiring in a healthy and holy way. Because there is a reward worth sacrificing that will reap great rewards when we get awakened to our sex drive, guilt-free, violation-free, and ready to be fully satisfied in an environment of yada intimacy. And ultimately, it does always come back to intimacy. And so just to summarize, bottom line, God wants us to enjoy our sex drive. He wants us to enjoy pleasure beyond belief when it comes to sexual intimacy in marriage. And when he tells us to wait for marriage to have sex, it isn't just because it's the holy or righteous thing to do, but actually having sex in marriage is also the most pleasurable way to enjoy sex and to enjoy your sex drive and the different facets of sexual arousal that we were designed to experience within this body, soul and spirit union that can only be found in marriage. And we can also trust God that not only is sex within marriage meant to be so pleasurable, but it's also the most glorious framework to bring children into the world. And also as a place of unrivaled comfort and release and great marital sex should also preserve us from engaging in counterfeits that actually cannot even satisfy. And what I do want to finally point out though is this, that this is God's original design. It's his original intention, which we have an opportunity to partner with. But because we live in a fallen world, there are so many factors and complexities involved that mean 
that yes, although this is how God designed it to be, it doesn't mean it's going to be a bed of roses. No, you have to fight to stay pure. You have to make a covenant with your eyes to stay loyal to your spouse. You have to work to have a fun and exciting marital sex life. And you have to choose to reject the world's way of bringing yourself relief and comfort and choose your spouse again and again. And you have to contend for connection with your spouse, even when physical attraction may have disappeared. But in a covenant marriage, you work through these things together and with Jesus. And as an individual, you continuously allow Jesus to take center stage through it all so that his original design can be fully embraced and enjoyed despite us living in a fallen world. And so this is great news, I think. Um, yeah, there's just so much that God wants us to enjoy and the way that he has created sex is really just flipping brilliant and so worthy of praise. Um, so yeah, I'm going to close with prayer. Um, so Heavenly Father, thank you so much for today's session. And I thank you, God, for your amazing plans and purposes for this incredible gift of sex, Lord, for covenant intimacy, God, and for companionship, for comfort and relief, Jesus, for procreation, for preservation, and for pleasure. And I just pray that this would be such a reality in the lives of those that are listening, whether they're married, whether they're hoping to be married, Lord Jesus, even a singles father, that there will just be such a celebratory anticipation of what's to come and such a glorious stewarding of um, sexuality here and now, even for those that are not married. And so I bless you and I thank you for all that was shared during this episode. And I pray God that it bears so much fruit. In Jesus name, I pray. Amen. Thank you so much for joining me for today's show. All related social media handles and links can be found in the notes section. If you did enjoy today's episode, then please do feel free to share it and do subscribe to the podcast if you want to know when a new episode is heading your way. If you'd like to get in touch, you can do that via Instagram or Facebook, or you can head over to livinginlight.co.uk. I cannot wait to be with you guys again, and thank you so much for listening to the Living in Light podcast.